you don't have a comic book guy at the head of it. You have Kevin Feige, who's like, he would watch Star Trek V and then go home and think about what he would want Star Trek VI to be to fix the Star Trek V. So he wants you to have a good movie at the end of the day. All the, the armchair quarterback solution seems to be just make good movies. And if there's one person that I feel like could just use that advice and be like, yeah, okay, I'll just make good movies, it's Kevin Feige. I'm Mary Long, and that's Dave Gonzalez, a podcaster, culture reporter, and a co-author of MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios. We caught up in person at our Denver podcast studio for a conversation about the origins of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and what foreshadowed its current challenges, why superhero movies originally weren't an obvious play, and the one thing that can't scale, even with an unlimited budget. So I want to talk about how Marvel lost its sheen, but I think maybe the best way to get there is to start at the beginning. Absolutely. And before we start at the beginning, let's talk about like the characters that are going to come into play. Because I found through reading your book, there are these real people that are behind the Marvel movies and that drive it are understanding who they are and what makes them tick is like really essential to understanding what drives Marvel. So there's a ton of people that you talk about in your book, but if you had to kind of hone in on three to five, who are like the big characters that are essential to understanding the story of Marvel? So I like to really start with uh, Isaac Perlmutter, who I will be calling Ike from here on out. We don't know each other, but that's just how I like to (laughs) refer to him. And uh, Avi Arad, who I have had the chance to meet and hang out with on several occasions uh, covering Marvel movies. Uh, But in the early 90s, uh, they were part of a company called Toy Biz that basically designed action figures. And... uh, Ike Perlmutter is really good at um, being a you know like a 1980s corporate raider. So mm-hmm. he would buy up companies and product and sort of disassemble them and move them around. Um, Toy Biz was the first company that he felt like really sticking with, and I think that's because at some point they inherited the uh, Batman action figure license around 1989's Batman. So they were able to see you know big toy. Uh, money coming out of movies and uh, thought that maybe these superhero toys could maybe do something. And so they were able to um, negotiate a pretty amazing deal to have a limitless license with Marvel in exchange for a portion of the company and uh, some control, some board sheet uh, seats uh, that they gave to uh, Ron Perlman. So there's going to be a Perlmutter and a Perlman, uh, but we'll all try to keep them separate. And uh, Perlman was somebody who had bought up Marvel Studios thinking that it was potentially like a mini Disney. He realized mm. uh, the the purpose of all the different characters and how that could create different product. But he was always very product forward. And so after, um, in like the 80s, Lucasfilm tried to do Howard the Duck. That's like the first big Marvel movie and it didn't do well. And so what Perlman sort of learned from that was there's much more cachet in making Marvel product in uh, having a movie in development, but not necessarily releasing a movie. So all of the early ni- late 80s, early 90s attempts at Marvel movies and we're like adaptations of the Incredible Hulk TV show or uh, low budget Captain America's where he has like a motorcycle helmet on and is a mask the whole time. And uh, this really uh, went up against somebody like Avi Arad, who was put in charge of developing uh, toys for the X-Men series. And Avi always liked the X-Men as characters because he says that he identifies with a mutant and he really he really <laughs> is a weird dude. Uh, he's, you know, like a leather jacket wearing toy executive who just has a mind for what sort of like toy products were going to hit big on the market. So once he realized that, you know, X-Men were going to be able to sell, uh, he was like, we need to push this in some sort of product. And 
as you know, the 80s taught toy developers the best way to do that sometimes is a cartoon. So he partnered uh, with Fox Kids to make the X-Men animated series that eventually grew to like the Spider-Man animated series and all of those things uh, pushed toy products to an incredible degree. But Avi always wanted to push further into movies despite where the company was going. So he was always um, on 20th Century Fox to get the X-Men into theaters and they were able to put some X-Men animated series shows in primetime as sort of like a market test and they did well and that's where the deal began to create the X-Men movies that we will eventually know about. And so once um, that proved to be profitable, Avi was allowed to create the first Marvel Studios, kind of in name only, but that uh, studio's job was more packaging and licensing. So they would try to get an interested director together and then maybe try to sell a script or a project with a director or an actor to a studio and then let those movies develop, which would have been great. We would have gotten a lot more Marvel movies in the late 90s if the company itself uh, under Perlman sort of didn't crash. Uh, he made some interesting business decisions. He used a lot of the profits from Marvel to buy up uh, like Fleer, the baseball card company, right as there was a strike going on, which was a weird decision that didn't pan out. He also bought, I believe, an Italian sticker company to sort of like disassemble for parts, uh, but essentially used all these acquisitions to create junk bonds. And a lot of that went through Marvel, sort of devaluing Marvel to the point that they had to declare bankruptcy. And then it became sort of a cage match uh, between a bunch of different entities. And Ike Perlmutter was not about to give up his board seats on Toy Biz. That was like his baby. So eventually in 1998, uh, they emerged from bankruptcy with Toy Biz sort of uh, absorbing Marvel and becoming Marvel Entertainment, which would eventually lead to the movies. A lot of those early attempts at Marvel movies, that's not like the Marvel Studios that we know today. It's this early iteration. So how do we go from that first Marvel Studios to then the Marvel Studios that we now associate with the MCU? I think they were really bolstered by the fact that they came out of um, bankruptcy to find that uh, Blade, a movie that they had sold for, uh, you know, like maybe 25 grand uh, the rights to actually was doing well. And I like to remind people always that Marvel movies really kicked off with a black vampire hunter played by Wesley Snipes. <laughs> uh, but then after that, um, a series of things happened. 20th Century Fox was finally free to do an X-Men movie and they found Brian Singer and his way into it uh, through producer Laura Schuller Donner, who at that point was working with assistant Kevin Feige because it all starts to weave together. That's a name to remember. Yeah, that's a good name to remember. <laughs> they found Brian Singer, who was like, I don't want to treat this like a comic book property. I want to tell my own story using these characters in this world. Uh, and Marvel was on board. X-Men's one of their uh, you know, most popular properties. It's always been an IP they could use to talk about various inequalities. And uh, Brian Singer was going to develop that into a more human story. Sometimes that meant taking a step away from the comics inspiration. That's why you don't have Wolverine, just classic yellow. And they sort of uh, you know, make fun of some of the comic book origins of those heroes. <laughs> Uh, but when the movie came out, because 20th Century Fox was kind of taking a risk, uh, they moved the release date around a little bit. And that really frustrated uh, Ike Perlmutter and Marvel Entertainment because it takes like nine months. It's, it's basically like making a baby to make a product line. And so if you shift a release date and you don't have product ready, or if it's a more mature movie than they were expecting, which it was, uh, you maybe don't have the correct product lined up. So uh, 
Ike Perlmutter would tell you they lost a lot of money on X-Men, even though it was uh, a hit. And uh, the next one was they had to untangle the Spider-Man rights, which is a whole different uh, story that uh, many people have written books and essays about. Uh, But when it was eventually uh, untangled and Spider-Man once again could become a movie and Sony had the rights to it. Uh, they made Spider-Man and Spider-Man was a gigantic hit in 2002. And Ike Perlmutter is like, we get 20% of the box office. Uh, so even then, even for like Marvel's biggest hits in 2000 and 2002, they weren't seeing as much of a return as they wanted. Uh, and a lot of the returns they would get uh, were still product based. So the big pivot happens in 2004 when a uh, movie executive named David Maisel watches uh, the Ben Affleck Daredevil. And he's like, surely they could do better than this from a story (laughs) standpoint. And so he researches sort of like the Marvel deal and how their licensing is going on. And he uh, gets through his contacts, uh, meeting with Ike Perlmutter and Mar-a-Lago. Trump definitely stopped by to say hi, because Ike Perlmutter and Trump are really close. And David Maisel's pitch was, you should Form your own studio because then all the money comes back to you. You aren't just licensing out your characters, but you get to recoup more of the box office. You get to make more of the calls about creatively what's going on. You're not just lending your baby to somebody else and hoping it works out. And Ike Perlmutter, very interested in that idea because it means more money, but also a very shrewd businessman. So he's like, come back to me with a way to create my own studio without putting any money down. And that's what starts like the David Maisel Marvel Studios era uh, with like an amazing business deal that he works out with Merrill Lynch. Well, and it's so, I feel like today you hear that pitch and idea and you think, duh, why didn't anyone think of that earlier? And that was so that was not how things were done. Right. Not at all. And so it's just so essential to like hit on the fact that that was a really novel concept, even though where we're sitting today, it's. Of course. Why hadn't anyone thought of that before? Right. And I mean, especially not from a comic book company. Mm. It was a really weird place for a movie studio to be coming out of. You didn't have any legacy movie people really at Marvel, uh, except Avi Arad, who had been a producer on basically these licensing deals. So he would be a uh, steward of the character and help people understand, quote unquote, uh, the comic book character. But it wasn't like he was... Uh, a producer who had a lot of uh, experience fundraising or any sort of thing about the business of making film, which is where David Maisel stepped in and had to concoct this deal where ultimately what happened is he ended up mortgaging a whole bunch of Marvel characters like Captain America, like Black Panther, like Shang-Chi to Merrill Lynch, uh, the movie rights to those characters in exchange for uh, over 500 million dollars and they uh thought was uh, they marvel would produce four different movies um ranging in budget from like 100 to 150 million dollars and through the profits of those movies would pay back the loan the thing that ended up being like the brilliant business thing and the reason i always credit david mazel because a lot of times people forget his name is in order to set up this deal he had to simultaneously convince the marvel board that these properties were worth losing while turning around and convincing the banks that they were worth the money that he was asking for it. So he had to ride both of those lines uh, with very, very smart businessmen on both sides, uh, but basically say like, you know, it's okay if we lose Captain America and there's a Merrill Lynch Captain America movie and then turn around and be like, no, like Captain America is our most valuable property. Like we're giving this to you because we're basically giving the whole company to you. So it's uh, amazing that that got pulled off and there were 
are some times uh, that David Maisel says they would, you know, try, try to switch the terms at the very end and he would just refuse to leave the conference room until like a deal was met. And it ended up working out. Not exactly one-to-one mortgage. He did have to pre-sell uh, some rights to Iron Man in terms of foreign properties, but that's uh, very widely done with movies uh, anyway. So he didn't do much out of the box outside of this gigantic IP mortgaging that luckily ended up working out. Iron Man came out and they were able to pay back the loan at one at bat. And uh, then that sort of led the next steps to Disney, but uh, also opened up Marvel Studios because while David was doing the business thing, he realized he needed somebody doing quality control. And that's where Kevin Feige came in. He was a assistant for Lauren Schuller Donner, the producer on the X-Men movies. And uh, basically she was busy, you know, running her producing empire. And Kevin Feige was the person who was on set every day and would call back at the end of the day or at the end of the week and sort of give full reports. Uh, But because of that, he was also making himself an expert in the comics. Uh, Kevin Feige is a movie guy more than he's a comic book guy. So he's interested in making good movies and making good movies that make money. Uh, He taught himself everything he learned about the Marvel universe. Uh, starting with X-Men. So he read a whole bunch of X-Men comics. Brian Singer was like, this isn't the story we're telling. He actually banned X-Men comics from the set. Uh, but Kevin Feige would like, you know, bring some Wolverine-centric issues and like slide it under Hugh Jackman's door and that sort of thing. But sort of keeping, realizing that you could do both. You could make a good movie that is going to be profitable, but also the answers to a lot of the sticky questions are actually in the comics. And they did that arguably with Iron Man. Yeah. Which, and that movie again, just feels like so iconic within, not just because it's the first, but also in what it's doing with this stigmatized superhero genre Mm -hmm. a little bit and how it's playing with that. So what made Iron Man so appealing to Marvel fans, but also to kind of the layman that was less familiar with comics? Oh, well, I picked uh, Iron Man specifically um, as a more layman property, uh, very specifically, once again, a toy property, because that's how Marvel really understood things uh, at the beginning of the turn of the century. Um, so they did a whole bunch of play tests with kids being like, of these heroes, which one would you like to see a movie with? And they're like, we want to see a movie with the flying robot that shoots lasers out of his hands. And at the time, the Tony Stark character in the comics, his probably most famous run was about him being an alcoholic. Uh, and then he's also, you know, a, an Avenger uh, that bops in and out of stories, but not necessarily the most family friendly mm. four quadrant character to go with. And nobody really knew who he was. So that gave John Favreau sort of a blank slate once uh, he came in to direct. John Favreau came in wanting to direct more of a uh, comedy, sort of like a man out of place movie for Captain America that would have been lighter than the eventual Captain America First Avenger. Uh, Basically, Kevin Feige saw Elf and was like, this guy can do fish (laughs) out of water and like, why wouldn't we want him uh, to do Marvel? And then when it pivoted to Iron Man, John Favreau's sort of big point was everything has to be plausible in the real world. We're not going to do a, you know, a rubbery superhero who's bending physics. It's like we have to set up why this happens and the plausibility of it. And that's sort of connected with a post 9-11 America. And it's like, why don't we, you know, lift him out of his original Vietnam storyline and put him uh, manufacturing weapons in the Middle East. Um, And they were able to sort of put together this script that seemed really great. And then they hired Robert Downey Jr. And then they got to set and they kind of threw the script out every day. Uh, So John Favreau and Robert Downey Jr. and Jeff Bridges and to a certain extent, Gwyneth Paltrow, but she doesn't actually like to do that, would just sit in a trailer and talk about what scene they were doing, what it meant. And a lot of that led to 
the humor that was in Iron Man and the sort of Robert Downey Jr. flow where it feels improvisational, even though uh, you can't really tell. Uh, and yeah. those sort of things became the hallmarks of a Marvel movie. So after that, An Incredible Hulk came out. They had a company retreat to sort of figure out how to do the next run of movies. And they went and they watched Iron Man. They're like, why does this work better than The Incredible Hulk? And it is, it has more humor and it has humor that arrives organically through the characters. And so they decided this is what the template for a Marvel movie is going to be, is we're going to start with plausibility, let the characters run and bounce humor off of uh, the incidents that happen actually in the movie. And so you could sort of feel that Iron Man was like this proto uh, Marvel Studios, uh, basically Marvel Studios flying without a template. Mm -hmm. And because of that, a lot of people who work on that movie talk about it more as having an independent film vibe. Yeah. Because uh, Marvel Entertainment, the businessmen out east were not interfering at all. Marvel Studios out west was sort of trying to figure out how it was going to operate. And because it, you know, struck gold the first time out, they're like, how could we lock in this method to the best possible degree? And uh, I think because of that, there's a lot of strengths from Marvel that come from that first production, but you also have a lot of the tensions that are now sort of breaking Marvel coming from that first production. Iron Man uh, was in post-production at the uh, beginning of uh, another writer's strike uh, back in the late 2000s. And... Um, they realized that their act three wasn't working. It was Iron Man and uh, Jeff Bridges in the Iron Monger suit sort of punching each other. Someone said it felt really rock'em sock'em robots mm. and like almost too plausible plausibility. <laughs> so they went back, John Favreau went back to the writers uh, and was like, hey, is there a way we can solve this? And they were like, hey, we have two weeks where we have to do pencils down. So they're like, okay, figure out a way to solve it in two weeks. And the writers took like about a week to make a scene where uh, Tony Stark takes Obadiah Stane up into the air because his suit doesn't have a defroster because he didn't build the tech, he inherited the tech. And they're like, that's a story reason to get it done. Even better, that is something that we could create entirely from ILM because they already had the sky plates from Iron Man's earlier flight. And uh, really all it took was sort of replacing characters and having uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Jeff Bridges come in and do some face stuff to like line everything up. But they created a new third act for Iron Man, mostly out of CG effects and um as the film was being edited together and that created this idea sort of that the best idea should win at Marvel mm. which is great if you're doing one or two movies a year uh, it gets harder when you're doing three movies a year and three Disney Plus shows a year and all of those things have to work through a visual effects pipeline and so that's sort of the beginning of uh, it would be great it makes the best movie if you're allowed to change things up until the very mm -hmm. end, but that's not scalable, just like Kevin Feige as a person isn't scalable. Ricky Malvi with Motley Full Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360 degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, and tested the accelerator just a little bit and felt the performance and agility. It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. 
It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport. To talk about Disney for a bit, it's sometimes wild for me to remember that that Disney acquisition first happened in 2009 Mm -hmm. because I, or not first happened, happened in 2009 because today I think a lot of people are prone to float questions of like, oh, is Disney ruining Marvel? But you go back to a story like you just told, and that's what, 2015 when that's happening? Mm -hmm. And Marvel is thanking God for Bob Iger and like his emphasis on creatives and him stepping in and really giving giving Kevin Feige the reins there. It's wild to step in a multiverse version of that and imagine what would have happened if Bob Chapek had been CEO at that point. Yeah. I mean, it would be really interesting to figure out just what would happen if Bob Chapek got to uh, make more of his own decisions, because the thing that sort of stymied Marvel during that time period, well, actually, and all the Disney sub brands, um, is uh, JPEG takes over uh, a couple of weeks before COVID hits. So all of Disney's big money making properties, which are its cruises, which are its parks, it's uh, basically its experiences, whether they be hotel or uh, the Beauty and the Beast musical, uh, all of those get shut down. And so what he's left with on the creative content side is this big push that actually Bob Iger put into place before he left, which is let's get subscribers on Disney+. Plus. Uh, Iger was very bullish about creating Disney Plus off of um, some cool code that he inherited from uh, ESPN and uh, being able to sort of create this streaming empire. And at the time, in uh, 2018, 2019, it looked like the streaming wars were going to be the be-all, end-all of entertainment. And so uh, he was like, we're going to make sure that all of our uh, flagship brands have a presence on Disney Plus. Pixar is going to be on Disney Plus. They had Kathleen Kennedy over at Lucasfilm announce a whole bunch of projects, a lot of which we still haven't seen yet because I don't think a lot of them are ready to go. Mm. And we see that with Marvel too, where they're kind of uh, encouraged to, at best, forced to, at worst, announce a whole bunch of projects that they didn't know for sure if they were going to end up doing. Like, are we ever going to see Armor Wars? I still don't know. So it was sort of off-footed. It was a it was a weird plan to begin with, but it was about flooding the streaming space with all these trustable brands and you would know what those things were going to be. And I think it worked partially because the pandemic gave them a forced year off to mm-hmm. it's much easier to do best idea wins if you have three months to figure out what the best idea is. And uh, they were able to sort of uh, work around uh, what their streaming properties were going to be. So when WandaVision kicks off in 2021 and then Loki follows it, uh, sorry, and Captain America, uh, sorry, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Spoilers, he becomes Captain America. <laughs> All of those felt fresh and they felt interesting, sort of like Lucasfilm was able to capitalize on The Mandalorian, but keeping those things updated and, uh, you know, this sort of idea that bege- began with Iger and Chapek sort of pushed really hard, like the sun never sets on the Marvel empire. You're going to have a Disney plus show. You're going to have a movie, but then the pandemic hits and disrupts that entire plan. And so they have to start slotting things in wherever Mm. they can. 
which um, caused a lot of problems for the company, uh, not just Disney, but Marvel Studios and all of it, all of the Disney sub brands, I think, um, which is uh, especially after the pandemic when they shortened the release window. So it was like maybe 60 days between when something came out in theaters and you'd be able to stream it on Disney Plus. That really hurt Pixar. That really hurt Walt Disney Animation. And it maybe hurt uh, Marvel. Marvel did a pretty good job of being like, no, all these things are connected. WandaVision's going to lead like right into Doctor Strange. So that would keep people watching things as soon as possible, basically for fear of being spoiled. But then once it became so much, once it became so many Disney Plus shows and so many movies, and none of them had the Avengers title, which seems to be the flag that says you actually have to see it. Um, it's sort of, I think that, fandom was like okay this is too much for me I, I will wait and catch up with it when i have time and sometimes they just don't return to that product and if you have fans saying that then that really tells you that there's a problem right, right. i think part of the magic of marvel and and the intrigue of marvel storytelling is that i as someone who's admittedly not a super fan could especially in the early days watch a movie and without having any background on iron man or captain america I was intrigued and like I knew what was happening and could kind and appreciated little hints at interconnectedness between mm -hmm. the movies. But now, again, as someone who's not a super fan, I'm not sitting down and watching all of these Disney Plus TV shows that are coming out. So you you miss out. Yes, you kind of flood the market and you maybe play to this idea of you have to watch it now or else it will be spoiled. But you flood it too much and you kind of create this problem for yourself where you're you're building niches mm -hmm. where previously you had everyone interested. Right. And uh, yeah, it's it's hard to recapture after Endgame because Endgame was such a moment uh, for everybody where they brought in a larger audience because it was like, here's a team up of all your heroes. And Endgame worked pretty well together with Infinity War at providing arcs for those heroes within those two movies. So if you wanted to know more about Thor, oh boy, there was a whole mm -hmm. bunch of movies you could watch. Now it sort of feels like, you know, people will ask like, what what movies do I have to watch to, you know, understand Black Panther Wakanda forever? And it's like, there's different answers to that, man, because there's lots of characters that sort of intersect now. And, and uh, some people feel, some people who are just casual Marvel fans, but would maybe be interested in being deeper Marvel fans, hit that homework barrier, uh, which is the side effect to being so successful with making every movie a sequel. It's the, you know, once you're at the top of the pile in terms of that type of filmmaking, once you're the only studio that's made a cinematic universe that makes sense and sustains, mm. what are the cracks that show in that? And the cracks are some people won't watch She-Hulk because they think they need to understand, you know, the Hulk or some people won't watch Falcon and the Winter Soldier because both of those characters are from, you know, other Captain America movies and they've sort of tuned out at that point because Cap's gone. So the good thing is, as Kevin Feige said at the very beginning when doing X-Men, the solutions are in the comics. Mm. In terms of doing serialized storytelling, Marvel has, uh, you know, half a century worth of history about how to do these things uh, that are essentially like product testing. So I hope that they could find a way through it. But business-wise, sort of flooding the Disney Plus space and increasing output without finding a way to scale up Kevin Feige, the person, uh, as the person capable of the alchemy. Um, has sort of hurt them, but in a way that I see that also happening with uh, Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy and uh, Pixar and Pete Docter 
is those people all rose to the top of their positions in an environment that is now completely different in terms of what people are watching and whether or not they're going to the movie theater for it. Marvel's latest release, The Marvels, mm-hmm. came out in early November and is considered a flop. Yeah. <laughs> it In the opening weekend, it made $47 million. So... I think all year you've had people kind of talking about, is this the end of the superhero era? Is this the end of the Marvel era? What do you think? (laughs) Uh, It's tough. So I I definitely agree with the flop terminology just as somebody who's followed box office for a long period of time. But it's also hard to tell when you put it up against other things people have caused to flop. When you make a graph with like Marvel earnings versus something like Blue Beetle, Mm. which is, you know, I thought also a fun film, but has performed uh, worse for Warner Brothers uh, and DC. So it's it's hard to tell. I think you're always going to you're always going to have a time where the shine came off uh, the brand a, a little bit. Uh, the thing that's very encouraging to me is uh, everybody's having a tough time at the box office. We're I, I think seeing a little bit more IP fatigue than we're seeing specifically superhero fatigue. Yeah. Um, and something like the Marvels is really interesting because even though it didn't open as well as other Marvel movies, uh, it's still, you know, one of, if not the highest opening from a black female director, Hesnia DaCosta opened it. So there was it had a couple of things where it had to be the best in order to even be passing. Mm-hmm. Um, or something like Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which came out earlier this year and everybody basically also considers uh, it being a sort of lackluster and not critically received well, but it's also still in the top 10 box office grocers of this year. So like how bad did it do really? It's interesting to see with all of Disney right now that if I were going to trust somebody to dig themselves out of their own hole, uh, it would be Marvel Studios. Uh, They've pushed a lot of their releases from 2024 to 2025, with the exception of Deadpool 3, which won't be the title, but we'll call it Deadpool 3. And uh, that's also going to be the first R-rated MCU film that's wide released. So there's one big risk next year, but they're excited about it, and they hope that uh, people will get excited about it to the point that when Marvel gets back to doing three movies a year, uh, there's a bit more appetite for it. And that's also going to allow them to sort of repivot and hopefully focus a little bit bit more on the quality of the stories Uh, plus the WGA strike the winnings that they uh, were able to pull off there requires there be a showrunner and an onset writer for their Disney Plus series Mm -hmm. uh, which is why they rebooted uh, Daredevil the streaming series uh, even though they'd shot either a quarter to a half of it depending on who you talk to and they shot a little bit of a series called Wonder Man that they're sort of going to retool slightly but what they learned Uh, sort of trying to produce television during the Marvel Studios method is that doesn't really work. You can't let Robert Downey Jr. make your TV series moment to moment. TV doesn't really work that way. So now they're going to need to have a showrunner with the show Bible and then an onset writer to help people sort of navigate everything, uh, which is much more uh, instead of being a disruptor in the TV space like they were trying to be with things like WandaVision and Loki season one. Now they're going to have to sort of play by the TV rules, which I think is great. Uh, Like, there's a reason television works so consistently across the 20th century. It's because we built these rules in order to have like fun serialized storytelling. So I'm hoping both those things could recenter. It's a lot harder if I'm looking at like Disney sub brands to think about, you know, like how the parks rebound or how Mm. Disney animation rebounds from Wish uh, or how Pixar rebounds from 
people just waiting to see it on Disney Plus and therefore not seeing it in the theaters. I was very happy that Elemental had the legs this year to overcome a flopping opening weekend um, and sort of go back into profitability. But I, I, it's very hard to see how Disney moves forward uh, with a whole bunch of its flagship brands basically not performing the way that they need them to. But you make a good point. I don't know that I would bet against Marvel and Kevin Feige either. Like at the end of the day, we're still talking about a hugely successful franchise Mm -hmm. that across 33 films has grossed over $30 billion. Like it's easy to pile on and say, oh, they're meeting they're meeting their demise. I don't know. We could sit tight and wait. See, it's like sometimes it's hard to be top dog. (laughs) And as somebody who's been following it since the beginning, like I heard a lot of stuff after Avengers Age of Ultron that I'm hearing now, Mm. which not necessarily the box office was great for that. But people were being like, it's too complex. It doesn't have like an ending like Marvel Studios is over. And I'm like, they can absolutely repivot because, again, you don't have a comic book guy at the head of it. You have Kevin Feige, who's like he would watch Star Trek five and then go home and think about what he would want Star Trek six to be to fix the Star Trek five. So he wants you to have a good movie at the end of the day. And everybody's, you know, solution seems to all the, the armchair quarterback solution seems to be just make good movies. And if there's one person that I feel like could just use that advice and be like, yeah, okay, I'll just make good movies. It's Kevin Feige. So I have high hopes for the rebound in terms of the creative forces there. As long as he sticks around, there's two things that Mm. would spell the death of the Marvel brand in uh, my mind right now. One is the sudden departure of Kevin Feige, because there's a lot of very talented people um, who form what uh, they call the Marvel Parliament, which is sort of like the second layer of producers that are able to shepherd projects through. But none of them have, I think, the track record uh, to do what Kevin Feige has been doing. Uh, and also, a lot of them are so hyper-focused on their movies, as they should be, uh, that it would be interesting to see what happens if you elevated them to the decision-making level that Kevin Feige needs to be at. Or if they release an Avengers movie and that bombs, because mm. that's their core brand. That's the brand you have to show up for. That's what we all learned in 2012, is you show up for an Avengers movie, and those are the culmination movies. So whether or not you've been watching what came before, what came after, an Avengers movie sort of has to live and die by its own runtime. And so when Avengers movie comes out and bombs, uh, then their options on how to move forward become increasingly limited and it's going to be difficult to regain the dominance that they had. Regardless of what happens with Marvel moving forward, you know, you have Warner Brothers DC. They've tried to build like their own superhero extended universe with with like varying degrees of success. Right. right. You have, OK, this summer when Barbie's coming out and people are talking about the Mattel cinematic universe, mm-hmm. whether it's Mattel or something unseen or it's Warner Brothers in DC. Do you have your eyes on another company, be it a studio or an IP empire that you think could replicate, genuinely replicate the success that Marvel's seen? I don't know. That's tough. I would say... With the pause that we've had in Star Wars, it's hard to count Star Wars out. But I'm trying to think about things, you know, outside of uh, Disney. I mean, I think what Sony's attempting to do with its Spider-Man universe is interesting. We're going to get a couple of non-Spider-Man character movies uh, this next upcoming year. We're going to get Craven, and we're going to get Madam Web, uh, and then Venom Three. Um, and that sort of idea that that could be building to something that Sony's always Sony's been trying to do a Sinister Six movie mm. since uh, 2010. So the idea that they could sort of band those together. But it's tough because the thing that made the Marvel Cinematic Universe was not only good film production and good business sense, 
but it hit at the exact right time. We have a chapter in our book that is sort of the Iron Man 3 chapter, but what it really is is the China's uh, movie-going population explodes. Uh, They go from like, you know, a couple hundred million a year to like billions a year in terms of the box office that comes out of China. And uh, China at that point was very open, not very open. They were just beginning to let uh, American productions into China at a more regular pace, uh, whereas previously there'd sort of been like, you would have a delay from the worldwide release and you could only release in certain months because they had reserved certain months to be for Chinese local cinema only. Uh, but, and then once these Marvel movies sort of come in and they're big and they're flashy and they're, you know, with the exception of Iron Man making uh, missiles um, sort of fluff, they managed to really capitalize on that in a way that we've now seen China sort of ramp down. Chinese national cinema uh, has been improving and their box office in China has been improving. And so they don't have the need necessarily to import a blockbuster anymore, uh, which has made them and then several other countries get a little more specific about what they want to see in Marvel movies. Um, So a lot of times movies won't open in, you know, the Middle East because it features a, you know, same sex relationship or something like that. And that's going to ultimately hurt a fraction of the international box office. But there was a time period in between like 2012 and 2016 where China was, the international box office was exceeding the domestic box office by such a degree because China was basically letting the movies come in and they Mm -hmm. were gigantic hits there. Now that the film landscape has changed, both because of that and because of post-pandemic like theatrical habits. I, if I knew how to replicate it, I would, and I would be an executive somewhere because (laughs) I think there is a certain amount of right time, right place, right idea uh, that allowed the MCU to do what it did. And also because of that, I don't think even the MCU knows how to replicate that. Yeah. Dave Gonzalez, thanks so much for your time. It's been awesome talking with you. Your book, which you wrote with two other authors, Joanna Robinson and Gavin Edwards, is called MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios. It is a fantastic book, regardless of whether you are a Marvel super fan or not. It talks about how things get made in Hollywood and is a great like kind of entertainment history of the past couple decades. So thanks so much. Great to have you on. Thank you. It was great talking to you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Mary Long. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 